It is an ex it's a supreme honor uh, for me to do this because uh, what I'm going to tell you today, um, get your Bibles out because we're going to be reading uh, some passages, some longer passages going through uh, some of the areas uh, that we're going to talk about today. And I do because I don't know anything better, but when I have something in my mind and someone has written it in a book that's, that says it in a coherent way, then I like to share that. So I have some of those things today. Uh, but hopefully when we're done today, it gives us an opportunity to uh, make, a, make a change in what we do or to keep or know that we're going in the right direction to fight the battle that we fight each day. So uh, with that, let's, let's get started. Let's pray real quick. Jesus, thank you uh, for the opportunity to to make your word known. And Lord, we thank you and we pray that uh, that you would make my thoughts and my my words clear and concise. And uh, we thank you in, for everything. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Okay, uh, first of all, if I was to, I'm going to, I want you to turn back the clock just a little bit, okay, just a little bit. Five years, 2018, okay? Some of you right now are going, yeah, it is. It's 2018. Okay. Five years ago, the statements that were made in if I made these statements to you in 2018, would you have what? How would you have said? Are you what? Really? Huh? Th these are some of the statements that if I made them just five years ago, you'd be saying, are you kidding me? No way. One. Statement number one, men claiming to be women will be allowed to compete against women in high school and collegiate athletics, and the feminist movement will offer no protest. Second statement, when asked, the average person will be afraid to define the term women. What is a woman? Third one, parents will be put on an, on an FBI domestic terror, terrorism watch list because they asked their local school board what their children are learning in school. The fourth, mayors, governors, United States senators and congressmen and members of the executive branch will crusade for the police departments across the country to be defunded. In the last statement, people will be fired from their job because they referred to a woman as a lady, to a man as a he, or not to use a preferred pronoun like blue shirt or yellow hat. Now, if I said those things five years ago, you'd go, he's going somewhere and he's not the same planet as us. There's no way that these things are happening. But today, these statements, okay, they're no longer ramblings of tortured minds. They are the ramblings of tortured minds that sit in the seat of power and influence in America today. So what we have on our hands is a... It's a society or a way of thought that is foreign to what we thought of just a few years ago. Just a few years ago. Maybe not even five. Seems like more like two. Okay? Since COVID. That, that type of, I think we can do that. You know that someday we'll be able to say, you know, when COVID, people go, yeah, I read about that in history books. Okay? And we have lived through it. Right? So, 
that situation we find ourselves in, I would like to make a, a correlation or a parallel to a time a little further back in our history, okay, back during the Revolutionary War. And I would like to read um, a little excerpt from, from a book uh, called Being George Washington. And I don't know if any of you have ever read that before. It's by a man named Glenn Beck, and I think some of you know who that, that is. And I'd like, you to, like to read a situation, a couple of, of uh, things that talk about where we are, where we were then and where we are today. This comes, uh, this time is December 1776. It's George Washington's headquarters outside of the farmhouse of Robert Merrick, 10 miles north of Trenton Falls, Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And it says this, perhaps it would be the end of George Washington and the end of his revolution. Colonel Rail certainly thought Washington was on the ropes. General Lee had thought so as well. And so, though he hated to admit it, did Thomas Paine. It was no comfortable Philadelphia print shop in which Paine now sat. Patriotism, patriotism meant more than words to the English-born pamphleteer. At 40, he, was now, he now wore the short brown jacket and feathered hat of the unit of his Philadelphia Associates Militia, the Flying Camp. Since August, Washington had done nothing but retreat. But while so many others had fled, only two days earlier he had been among those ordered to evacuate Fort Lee. Payne had remained, and now, by flickering campfire light, employing the taut calfskin of a Continental Army drumhead as his desk, he scratched out the words of a new pamphlet. Hard circumstances demanded hard truths. Events mandated a call to action worthy of a sounding trumpet. Normally, Tom Payne wrote slowly and painfully, but that was a luxury he could no longer afford. He paused, but not only for his smallest hand to dip the sharpened quill once more into the blackness of his pewter inkpot. His piercing blue eyes ablaze, he rapidly composed word after word in a fine penmanship that he had learned as a boy in England. Before long, he completed his task. My good man, come here, Payne demanded of an army courier, rough-hewn frontiersman from the Pennsylvania backwoods who mounted atop a horse that looked like it had served with its rider in the French and Indian War. I'm Thomas Paine. I hear you are bound for Philadelphia to the Continental Congress. The courier stared blankly at Paine, who seemed a tad too excited uh, for his pace. He said nothing, but his horse flicked its tail, more out of habit than anything else. It was now too cold for flies or any other sort of insect. Well, man, what is it? Paine demanded, drawing out each syllable so this dimwit before him might better understand his simple question. I came the answer in a harsh Scottish-Irish brogue, Philadelphia. I mean to ride with you, soldier. I need to return to my print shop to I have something printed of importance to our cause. How fast can you ride? The messenger eyed Payne with contempt. Fast enough for General Washington, sir, he answered. He was clearly annoyed by, the pain, by this Payne fellow, whoever he was. But Tom Payne didn't care whom he offended. He wanted his words printed while there was still an army to read them to. And so then we go to the next part of our story. It says this, a journey of mere 800 feet would take hours. We find, that now this is, uh, I should probably check this up. This is Washington's camp and they're getting ready to cross the Delaware. 
to attack the Hessians at Trenton. Famous photo that we've, famous painting we've seen, him crossing the Delaware. Okay, that's where he is, that's where he finds himself right now. The Continental Army needed to invade Trenton before daylight to maintain any hope of surprise. Every minute cost, every minute lost could cost a life. Every hour lost could lose the battle. The battle lost could forfeit the revolution. Yet despite the obvious pressure, Washington paused to complete one last task. Two days earlier, he had read from a pamphlet. Its words rang like a siren. They roared like a cannonade. His men needed to hear the, those words, and they needed to hear them now. In the freezing air at Knowles Cove, Washington distributed a frozen, uh, excuse me, distributed a dozen bound copies of this little work to his officers. Read this or have it read to your men. They are better words than I am capable of. Read them now before they depart. Now think about that for a moment. George Washington says, these are better words than I could come up with. Pretty important words if you're, if you're, if you're a history buff. General Knox chose to read the words himself. Famous for his booming voice, Knox calculated that he could best bellow out whatever the commander thought so necessary for his men to hear. Never send out a man to do a good job. You could better do yourself, thought Knox. General Henry Knox cleared his throat and began to proclaim the words that Tom Paine had scribbled out upon a drumhead not long ago, then galloped so quickly back to Philadelphia to print. These are the words. These are times that try men's souls. The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will in this crisis shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny like hell is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. When Knox had finished, his final words echoing across the land, only silence remained. The icy breath of the soldiers filled the air. Finally, Washington broke the silence. All right, men, he bellowed, his voice firm with resolve. It's time to go. Now, <coughs> excuse me, I read that because we find ourselves they found themselves in the revolution. We find ourselves in a, in a place where we're in a battle. Now, we've said that a long, you know, how many times have you heard that from a pulpit, pulpits everywhere? That we're in a war. We're fighting a war. And it's so true. But it seems like it comes closer to us now than it ever has before. So we find ourselves talking about things, about what kind of battle are we in. I know that we've had some conversations uh, myself and others here about, boy, I never thought we'd see it like this in our, gener in, in our lifetime, okay? It was something that I'm ashamed to say, something my kids are probably going to have to deal with or my grandkids, okay? Uh, I was wrong. We deal with it right now, okay? It is a battle. It's a battle and it's a war, and we have to know where we're at. We have to know that what we do makes a difference, and we have to prepare ourselves. We have to be ready to do and act upon the things that we think God would want us to do. Okay? So what do we do? <clears throat> what do we do as Christians? What do we need to prepare ourselves to answer the questions, to stand up for our beliefs, and to be positive examples to our children, whether they are adults or whether they're youth, whether they're still in our homes, and our grandchildren and the people around us? What do we do? 
In these times, we need to prepare ourselves just like soldiers going into battle. If we think that it will not affect us, okay, I think we're burying our hands, burying our heads in the sand. I think we're not living in reality. Because all these things we've talked about already, they are affecting us already. Okay? I love to watch the news. I love to read the newspaper. I love to see, you know. But I don't have that love anymore because I get mad every day I look at it. Okay? I think God's trying to tell me something. Quit looking at it. Okay? So far, I'm not taking his advice. I just keep looking at it. Keep looking at it. Okay? So, um, which brings me to my next book uh, that I want to talk about, How People Prepare for Something. This is from a book that I highly recommend if you're a World War II buff. Stephen Ambrose's book, The Band of Brothers. Uh, it talks about the 506th Division or Company, uh, Easy Company that were known as the Band of Brothers, that were really the fore, forerunners of uh, what we know now are the special forces uh, in the Army. Okay, And um, this comes from the time right before uh, D-Day, okay? December, uh, excuse me, June 6, 1944. Okay? And this is what a paratrooper, what the 506th Easy Company guys, this is what they wore before they were dropped behind enemy lines in the middle of the night in France, in Normandy, a long time ago. Okay, this is what they wore. Climbing aboard the C-47s was difficult because of all the gear each man carried. Individuals were overloaded, following the age-old tendency of soldiers going into combat to attempt to be ready for every conceivable emergency. The vest and the long drawers issued each man were impregnated to ward off a possible chemical attack. It had made them cumbersome. They stank. They itched. They kept the body in body heat and caused torrents of sweat. The combat jacket and trousers were also treated. The men carried a pocket knife in the lapel of their blouses to be used to cut themselves out of their harnesses if they landed in a tree. In their baggy trousers pockets, they had a spoon, razor, socks, cleaning patches, flashlight, maps, three-day supply of K-rations, an emergency ration package, four chocolate bars, a pack of charms, powdered coffee, sugar, and matches, ammunition, a compass, two fragmentation grenades, an anti-tank mine, a smoke grenade, a gammon bomb, which is a two-pound plastic explosive for use against tanks, and cigarettes, two cartons per man. The soldier topped his uniform with a webbing belt and braces, a 45 uh, caliber pistol, standards for non-coms and officers. Privates had to get their own, and most did. Water canteen, shovel, first aid kit, and bayonet. Over this went the parachute harness. His main parachute in its backpack, the reserve parachute hooked in on in front. A gas mask was strapped to his left leg and a jump knife bayonet to his right. Across the chest and shoulder slung his muset bag and with the spare underwear and ammunition. And in some cases, TNT sticks along with his broken down rifle or machine gun or mortar diagonally up and down across his front under his reserve sheet pack, leaving both hands free to handle the risers. Over everything, he wore his Mae West life jacket. Finally, he put on his helmet. Some men added a third knife. Others found a place for extra ammunition. One soldier, Gordon, carried his, his machine gun, figured he weighed 
twice his normal weight. Nearly every man had to be helped onto the C-47. Once aboard, the men were so wedged in, they could not move. Now, you think about that, their preparation to get ready to go into a place that they didn't really know what was going to happen. Okay? All that stuff was there for what? It was there to prepare them for something they may not know was coming or maybe they, worse yet, they knew was coming. But to be able to go on to that, to that plane, the 150-pound man now weighing 300 pounds, um, that's the preparation that I think we need to do to stand ready. And are we there? It's a, it's a checkpoint for us all. Checkpoint for me. Are we there? Are we prepared to answer those questions or some of those statements that I used uh, in the beginning? Okay. Are we ready to stand for what we know is right? Are we ready to, to stand knowing, preparing for things that we may not have to use, but that are, are we ready? That's the key. Are we ready to face the things that are coming down the road? Okay. Um, so what we want to do is take a look. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay. The biggest thing I think sometimes we think, you know, again, those of us that have children, okay, or those of us that have grandchildren, okay, we have a prime opportunity, and that's to, to be able to act or react in a way that God wants us to do that, not only to stand for what we know is right, but to show the people around us how to act, to provide that opportunity to sell, tell people, this is the way dad did it. This is the way grandpa did it. Okay? He stood up. He was prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Okay? And in order to do that, we have to think about it. We, have to, we can't just go, I'll, I'll, I'll handle it when we get there. Okay? We'll handle it when we get there. That would be like me as a football coach saying, okay, we're playing Bighorn this weekend. No, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell we're playing Moorcroft this weekend, just because Steve's standing here, okay? And um, we got this video of their tendencies and their offensive formations and their defensive formations, and we got that, but we'll just figure it out when we get there Friday, okay? We'll, we'll look at it and go, oh, oh, that's what they're running. Now, how long would you last as a football coach? Not very long, if that's the way you did it, right? But I'm afraid sometimes we, and when I say we, I include myself, we think, well, I'll handle it when I get there. I don't think we have that opportunity. I don't think we can take that, that tack anymore. We need to be prepared to say, what will I do if and when this situation arises? Okay. Um, so that's, that's kind of the idea that... that um, that where I want to go now is, so what do we do? Okay, what do we do to prepare? How can we, what are some things that we can do? Um, I have three things. First of them, and I'm not going to say anything today that you haven't heard before. There's no new idea that I'm going to throw out and go, oh boy, that, that's the answer. Okay, that, that's, I don't have that capability, that capability. But I know three things that I think we can help prepare ourselves. First, and probably more important than anything. We need to know 
God as our personal Lord and Savior. Now, I say that and you go, yeah, that's a no-brainer. I get that. Okay, That's why we're sitting here. <clears throat> and to those who have truly given their lives to Christ, and, and they're fully assured of eternal life, they have that number, they have that, that brick in place. And they can build upon that. But as Henry David Thoreau said one time, many men lead, lead, <clears throat> lead lives of quiet desperation. There are untold numbers, <coughs> excuse me, there are untold numbers who sit in pews in churches across this land every Sunday who say the right things, do good deeds, and give tithes to the church who have never given their hearts to Christ. They live their lives to benefit themselves, and when the end draws near, they'll try to convince God to let them into heaven. After all, a loving God would never leave people like me out. At this moment, the words of the 38th chapter of Job, they come screaming to my mind, to the forefront of my mind. Remember when God said this? Who is that? Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Okay. God doesn't really, a just God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Because okay. what sometimes I think we fool ourselves and we say, you know, loving God will take everybody to heaven. I have a sister that's told me that. My sister, my older sister. There's no way that God will keep people out of heaven. He just, a loving God will not do that. Okay. If we get to that point, okay, we know that we have to give our lives to, to Christ. If we don't, <clears throat> excuse me, I've had a cough for a long time here, and I lost my place already. Isn't that terrible? I'm going to find it, though. Here we go. You have to be truly prepared for what lies ahead. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I implore you today. If, you, if you're sitting here in this pew and you have never given your life to Christ, if you have never said, I was wrong, I'm a sinful person, and I can't do it on my own, you need to do that. Or you need to find someone, myself, Dave, anybody, anybody in this church that will help you along with that. Because if you don't, you're fighting a battle that's, that you're going to lose. You're going to lose. No, 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 you don't understand. I'm a good guy. No, you're going to lose. Why? Because I said I told you that? Because God says that. Okay. I'm going to come back to this. Thank you. I just, I'm going to tell Daryl, I took a drink of water just like you do every once in a while. So it's almost like it's almost like this. It's almost if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior and you're getting ready to do the things we talk about, prepare to answer, because you're a good, honest, moral person, okay? It's almost like having a having a big barrel and by the side and you go, I'm gonna put in this will be good for my life. I'm gonna put these bricks in. I'm gonna I'm gonna do good things and I'm gonna build my way, I'm gonna build my way to heaven. Okay? By doing good things. We all know that there are religions in the world that Work on works, don't they? The better works I do, hopefully if I'm good enough, I make it. So I keep putting things in that bucket, 
And then when the time comes that I need it, I go to that bucket. Oh, that God will like this. But you know what? I look in that bucket. There's no bottom in the bucket. All that stuff you've been doing has been going gone, and it doesn't count. It doesn't count for anything because there's no bottom in the bucket. So that's the main thing. That's the one thing that I want to make sure that we have a bottom in our bucket. You know, That's the main thing. All these other things we're going to talk about today mean nothing if I think that I can just, you know, I'm a good guy. I, I, I can convince people. I have a sister, sister-in-law, okay, that uh, she's probably the best salesman I think I've ever been taught. She could, you know, the old saying, you can sell uh, ice cubes to Eskimos, okay? She could. She could have you buying something that you hate, but you go, well, I'll buy it. I'll buy it from her, okay, even though I don't like it. But sometimes I think we, we play games with God, don't we? We say, no, you know, if I could just, if I, once I explain it to him, everything's good. It doesn't work that way. Okay? It doesn't work that way. Um, let me give you one prime example. <coughs> I was, uh, I, my last year of teaching was, uh, well, the last two years of teaching were the COVID years. The COVID with masks in schools and everything like that. I worked with several Several colleagues, uh, colleagues, teaching colleagues, lost people that absolutely lived in abject fear every day they came to school. Fear of contracting a disease they didn't understand and watching the things on TV and bought put, hook, line, and sinker the stuff that all the talking heads were saying about COVID. Lived in fear. Now, these people are not just your everyday fly-by-night person. They were, they're highly trained. They're highly, they're very smart. They're educated. But they were afraid of their own shadow. Okay. And then when I would say those lovely things like, you know, I, I don't, I, I will not live in fear. I don't have to live in because if God wants me, if he wants me to die by COVID, then I'll die. But if he doesn't want me to, then I won't. Okay? It was a, a supreme opportunity for me to talk about that. So number one thing, the number one thing is we got to know where our foundation's at. Okay? We've got to know where the foundation's at for our battle. Because if we don't have one, we are wasting our time. Okay? And we don't want to do that. You don't want to waste time. How many people in there go, yeah, I love to waste time? Okay, don't, don't raise your hands. Don't worry. Okay. So anyway, that's the first one. The second one is a simpler one. Okay, Not simpler one, but a different one. We need to hide God's word of hope, love, and uncompromising faith in our, in our hearts. Okay. We need to know what the Bible says without having to look up everything every time. Because I think when I say this, again, 10 years ago if I'd have said it, no. There may be a time where we might have to hide this because we can't meet like we're meeting. No, that won't happen. I think we're burying our head in the sand. Okay? Ask the people in China if it can happen. Or in other, other places in the world. 
So it's, imba- it's vitally important. And I don't want I, I to belabor the point because I struggle with, I struggle with uh, this memory. I struggle with it a lot. Okay? I can tell you the batting average of some guy that played in 1955. I can tell you how many times the Broncos have won the Super Bowl and what years and who were the starting people on both sides of the ball. But when I go to, to memorize scriptures, I struggle. I go, boy, it should be easier than this. Do you know why? Because Satan doesn't care if I know who started on the Broncos in 1998. He doesn't care. But he cares whether I know what's the word in the Bible. So he fights me. So I'm kind of a fighter, so I fight that. But it's difficult. But does it mean that I don't do it because it's difficult? I don't have the time. Baloney, you don't have the time. Can we think in a 24-hour period how much time we waste? Okay. Now, I'm not talking about when you're at work. I'm not talking about that. Hopefully, you don't waste too much time at work. Okay. But is that kind of a hollow thing? I don't have time. We do. The best thing that I've done this year since I've been uh, back home and helping, you know, teach my kids at home, is for after we do our Bible time in the morning, we have a time where we sit down, the two girls and I, and we have a five-minute studying of our scripture memory for that week or that month or that day, whatever. Okay, five minutes. That has been a life-changing thing for me. Five minutes. So what did I used to say? I used to say to myself, Boy, you couldn't squeeze out five minutes somewhere. Okay. But he's taught me five minutes makes a big difference. I think we can all find five minutes or more. Okay. We do a lot of driving, do a lot of listening to things, and do a lot of watching TV or movies or whatever. Five minutes. We can do that. That's a, that's a step that we can do to prepare ourselves. Why do, you, why, do you, why do you believe what you believe? Let me tell you. I know. And it puts me to shame when my 13 and 14 year old daughter rips off uh, two long parables and they know it like that. Okay, I mean they're pretty good. I even I bought them a hamburger on Friday because I went, hey, that's good. Not we had a hamburger. Okay, but that's what we have to do. That's to prepare. Now is that to prepare to go out and and win the slugfest? No, it's to stand, isn't it? Just like we talked about two weeks ago. It's to stand. Okay, to stand. To say, no, I cannot go there because of this. Because this is what the Bible says. Okay, thirdly, we're going to look at, at examples from the Bible. Okay, I think we learn a lot from what people have done before us. So I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Daniel. And some of you might have thought, Yeah, he's probably going there. I knew he was going to go to Daniel. Daniel is a pretty good book when it comes to telling us why we do and how we prepare. Okay, the first one, I want you to turn to chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. We find a young man, very young, and his friends in a particular situation that you would rather not be in, okay, as a young person says this, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand 
with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, used without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years and at the end of that time were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, and the tribe of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Now, remember, here's, here's where you find yourself. They're young guys, but these are guys not the, these aren't the, the kids on the street corner you go, oh, those kids, they don't do anything, and they're lazy. These guys were the All-Americans, okay? These guys that were good at everything they did. They were smart. They were good-looking. They were athletic. They had the letter jackets with all the sports on them, along with the music, the music clip on the one side and, and the speech and debate thing. They did everything. They were the top-notch guys, right? They were the best that Jerusalem had. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink, for why should he, why, why should he see that you were in worse conditions than the youths who are of your own age. So would you, so would endanger my head with the king. And Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief and the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test yourselves for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and our appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with the servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, it was that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and wine that they were to drink and gave them vegetables. So we know that story. But Daniel at, some people say 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, teenager age, do you think he just came up with that idea? Hell, you know what? I think I think maybe we'll just eat the other stuff because I really can't do that. You think that that was probably ingrained in his household when he was younger, before he left? Do you think that he had an idea what he was going to say before the eunuch said that to him? I believe so. I believe that he had already figured out, he would already prepared what he was going to say if someone ever wanted to say, Hey, try this. This will be good. But this was, now what did the eunuch say to him? He goes, yeah, I'm with you, but I don't want to lose my head. I want, I think maybe you better eat what the king is telling you because, number one, I don't care how you turn out, but I kind of like to keep coming back to work every day. 
But in this point, this young person, this teenager, had already thought, when someone says, eat this, that's defiling to me, and I will not. I will not. Okay? He had thought beforehand. And that's really what the idea of this is, is thinking beforehand. What will you do? It's the same thing as saying, you know, if you continue to do that, we're going to fire you. Well, if someone says that, are you ready to say, what are you going to say? Are you say, okay, I'll do it your way because I need my job. Or are you going to say, you know what? I've, I've already decided in my heart what I'm going to do. I've already went through the scenarios of what you're going to do. And then, when you don't have to think about it, then you go, well, I don't know. I, I, this is what I'm going to do. Okay? That's one example. Let's look a little bit further down in chapter 3, verse 16. Daniel's a really, uh, really fun book, and I really enjoy this story. Uh, chapter 3, verse 16. We find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay? And they're in a bit of a pickle. Okay? They had... Um, they said, you know, hey, we're not going to, when everybody, when everybody bows down to that idol, we're going to stand because that's not the idol we bow down to. We don't bow down to idols. We only bow to God Almighty, right? Now, can you imagine, remember the, the scenario of all these thousands of people around this statue. And when they blow the horns and play the psalters and the fifes and all that kind of stuff, everybody hits their knees except for three kids. Okay? Do you think they had thought it through before that happened? How many times have we gone along with the crowd because ten people said this and three people did that? Anybody that's ever been in a class or college class ever had the thing where the professor would say, okay, if you believe this way, you're going to stand in that corner and go on over there, and then three or four people would go over there. If you believe this way, go stand on that side. And three or four people would go over or maybe. And, and then they would say, well, you have to make a decision. Which way are you going to be? Which You can't be in the middle. Go one way or the other. So the majority would go to one end or another. And invariably, the three or four on the non-believing side would wander over to the other side. Why? What do they, what do they call that? Peer pressure, right? Peer pressure? Okay. I, and I know I've said this before. I know I've said it because as I get old, I only have about eight things I say, and I just repeat them. Okay. Back in the back in the uh, '80s, the NFL went on strike, and there was a guy, Keith Bishop, that played for the Broncos, offensive guard for the Broncos, that was the player rep for the Broncos. And he went to this place, a meeting, NFL, and they were deciding whether they're going to strike or not. These guys that were getting paid. Millions of dollars were decided whether they were going to get strike because they weren't getting enough money. Okay? There was a room of 600 people, and they said, they said, stand up. They didn't say stand up if you want to strike. They said stand up if you're against the strike, against striking. One person, 600 NFL players stood up, Keith Bishop of the Broncos, because he said, it's not right. I signed a contract that said play. And then they talked to him later on. 
that was that tough for you to do? He goes, yeah, it's probably the toughest thing I've ever done in my life. Why did you do it? My dad told me to stand up for things I believe in. Had he thought it through? You bet he had. You bet he had. So we find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego here. They answered and said to the king, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Because he said, you know, it, I, remember, they're standing outside a fire. A fire that's been, I, I still don't understand that. Do you? Do you understand? They go, it's been seven times hotter than already that would burn you up. I, I don't know. I don't, I don't get that. But he's going, if you just bow down to me, you don't have to go in there. You know that you know that thing that's really hot there. You don't have to go there. So they say this. We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from this burning fiery furnace, and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. If we stand, if we prepare, like we're talking about, and we know what we're going to do in a tense situation, it might not go well for us. It, they may do what they say they're going to do. They may fire you. They may picket your house, or they may make life miserable for you. But what do they say? You know, if God wants to, he'll, he'll deliver us from the fire. But if not, we're still not going to do it. Okay. Powerful statement. Powerful statement. Because they were tough guys. Because they believed that God would, was on their side. And they knew what they were doing was right. Now, the story is what? They go into the fire. And the good old king says, how many guys did we throw in there? Because I see four. We put three, but I see four. And it's commonly, you know, known that that person was God. Christ was in there with them. They came out not as much as being singed. Okay? That's a success story. But the key thing in his, this is if we prepare, they might do the bad things they say they're going to do. Should that make a difference? If we've thought it through, it won't. The next one. Um, is Daniel chapter 6. This one we talk about Daniel again. This time, Daniel is not a youth. He's an old man now. Okay? Daniel chapter 6, verses 10 through 19. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, now what's the document we're talking about? Remember the document was, guys, they couldn't find anything wrong with him, could they? We looked and we... You know, he doesn't, he doesn't beat his dog. He takes out his trash. He goes to work every day. He does a good job. Okay, we can't find anything to trip him up. So they make a thing saying, the king's got to go. You've got to bow down to the king, right? Okay, so they, and they signed it all in there, and they said, you know, we got the king. We got him over a barrel because he can't, can't take it back, right? So he says, when Daniel knew the document had been signed, he went to his house where... He had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came 
came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the conjunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And the king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one who exiles, one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction that you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he had heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel. And he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, No, O king, it is the law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the lion, den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. That a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace, spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fred, fled from him. From him, from him, and we know what happens. The next morning, the king comes, and what does he say? Just in the the sliver of hope, he says, "Daniel, everything okay down there?" I'm paraphrasing. Okay, everything all right? And he hears the voice of Daniel. Now, Daniel, he said, "Let's go back a little bit." Oh yeah, he's uh, he's got that. You know, did you hear about the new law? Have we, have we said that before lately in the last couple of years? Did you hear about that new rule, a new law? Okay. So now he goes, yeah, yeah, I heard about it. Really? Okay. I got to go. I, it's my time to pray. Had Daniel thought that through beforehand? Yeah. What am I going to do if they say it's against the law to do that? Well, I'm still going to do it because there's a higher law, right? We know these stories. We know these stories. But the stories are there for us to look again and again and again because they are common people that serve an uncommon God. And they have thought the process through. What am I going to do? The last one I want to look at is in Genesis chapter 39. A man named Joseph. I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm not going to read it out. Okay. But Joseph, uh, remember, he, he, um, he just gets on a nice, uh, easy place, and he gets to, he gets to where he's at, um, you know, because uh, he just felt like traveling down there to see the king in Egypt and that stuff, right? How did he get there, remember? His brothers didn't like him, and so they uh, beat him up and put him on a, caravan and sold him to the people in Egypt, right? So through that, God is with him, and he ends up being a pretty much a top dog in Potiphar's house, right? So much so that Potiphar says this, everything I have, it's just like me being here. When I'm not here, you're running the place. Everything you say goes. It's, you're, you're the golden boy, okay? Everything you want is here because I trust you, except for one thing. My wife, 
be careful. Okay? On it, I get I get that, right? Run everything, but you know. But as when he leaves, what happens? You know, the uh, Potiphar's wife has designs on Joseph, doesn't she? And he re- he rebuffs her advances. So much so that she, she gets frustrated, and what does she do? She calls him in, says, you can't get away from me now. He runs, leaves his cloak there, and it looks like he's done something bad. So much so that when Potiphar comes back, what does he say? He's a little mad. But you know, have you ever noticed in all the things we know about history, if you were in that place and you came back and that was what happened with a person that was serving under you, what would you do to that person? You, Yeah, he'd be dead in 15 minutes. But for whatever, you know, and it might have been, it might have been in the back of his mind that, you know, hey, that's probably not all Joseph's fault. You know, maybe. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just looking out where it's not written. Okay? But what's he do? What did he do? What did Joseph do? He said, I can't go there. Okay? I made a promise. Can't, I can't do that. He had thought it through before where, let's face it, in a lot of places, people didn't have that kind of self-control. Okay? But he did. Now, those are examples of that we looked at in the Bible here. So and we can say that there are places we look at to say, yeah, they have purpose in their heart. As Christians, they say, I can go there, but I cannot go any further. And we make a stand even if it doesn't work out well for us here, here on earth. Okay? But what an opportunity I think we have to be able to show our loved ones this is how you stand. This is how you do it. Okay? It's not just, well, if it works out for me, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll stay for it. But I, I made a point. I made my point before I caved. Do we know what we're going to do? That's, that's the situation that we find ourselves in. Um, we don't want to do this. We don't want to say, what happens if we do nothing? What happens if we just go along with the flow and hope that things get better? We have had those conversations again, haven't we? With, you know, God can intervene and he can. He can change anything he wants to because he's God. But I think we know deep down in our hearts that it may not change because we know what's coming. Okay? We know what the end of the, the, what the Bible says is going to happen. To those who believe, you know, it may be us and it may not be us, but we may go through some times that aren't going to be very much fun. And frankly, right now, it's not very much fun. Okay? People aren't knocking at our door wanting to take our Bible, wanting to say, you can't work there anymore. Your, your method of, your means of livelihood is no longer because of what you believe. We're not quite there yet, but we are hurtling there as fast as we can. And so I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. But I know one thing. I know what God wants me to do. And I beg you to think through what's going to happen when you're faced with those things. Of the, of the, of the one little moment 
that maybe my five-year-old grandson looks and goes, Grandpa stood up when he and, and didn't go over, but he stood up. Okay? I have one more thing I'd like to read to you. And when I saw this, I read it to my family, and I'd never heard it before, ever. But I think it's interesting. Um, this is about a man. His name is Martin Niemöller. He was a German theologian during the rise of the Nazis in the 1930s. And what was interesting is um, in 1933, he was very sympathetic to the rise of Adolf Hitler because he was a nationalist and he loved his country. Okay? And, he, and he thought, hey, if that makes, if what he's doing sounded good to him, okay? he wanted to be a person, he wanted to be with a person that thought Germany was the most important country in the world. Now, we understand that, don't we? Don't we want to be patriotic in our, in our country? We, want, we know how important America is to us. So he went along. He thought that was good. But it didn't take him long to realize that what he was doing was not what Martin Niemöller could handle. So he, became, he began to act out and to stand in opposition to him as he started to make changes in the church that he knew weren't right. So what did that get for him? Okay. He became an outspoken critic of the Nazis, and from 1937 to 1945, he spent a few days in luxury in a concentration camp. Okay, From 37 to 45. And he said this, in 1946, while on tour of the western zones of Allied-occupied Germany, he made this haunting statement. He said this, First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. So we need to count the cost, don't we? Let's count the cost as Christians, okay? Think through, pray through, what you're going to say when given an opportunity to stand for what you believe, okay? The answers we give, okay, the stands we take, they'll serve as a beacon of light for those around us, for our kids, adult kids, for our grandkids, for the kids we have at home, people down the street, okay? They'll serve as a beacon for that, okay? Um, It's interesting, isn't it, that we, we do live in a day where, where times that try men's souls. That's where we are, okay? Because God has chosen us to light the way that, you know, that comes for the people that come after us, okay? And I think that's important for us to try to do, is to do that, counting the cost and then standing angry. Okay? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. And Lord, I pray that just one little thing or something that you uh, caused me to say would, would uh, sharpen our uh, ideas of what we need to do to, um, to stand firm, to put on the armor of God, and to fight the good fight uh, in the time that's uncertain. But the thing that's most totally not uncertain is your love for us and your willingness to stand by us no matter what. We thank you, and we praise you in your name. Amen.